Acts chapter 24, 1 to 27. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation, everywhere and in every way, most excellent, Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. <clears throat> Amen. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked." So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring their charges if they have done have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the dissenturian to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Continuing in Acts chapter 25. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favour to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. 
When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defence. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Please leave your Bibles open there at uh, chapters 24 and 25. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we approach your word now, as we reflect on um, how you're interacting with, with Paul and with the Jewish people here in the book of Acts, how your spirit is working in Paul, using him to bring people into your kingdom. Uh, we pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, challenge our hearts and work in us today, Lord, that we might be made more and more like Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it's no surprise to anyone if I say that uh, recently the Australian government held a national referendum to decide whether the Australian population supported the concept of having an Indigenous voice in Parliament. Now, I'm not going to speak about for and against or have an opinion either way. When What I'm talking about, what I'm going to comment on is some of the ways that people responded to the outcome of that referendum. Before the referendum, there was a huge amount of debate. Politicians travelling around the country, the media, social media, newspapers, all had their arguments to make. But on the evening the final outcome was announced, some of the responses that were received really stood out to me. Some of the leaders of the side that did not uh, win the uh, referendum began to claim that the other side had been spreading disinformation, which I think is uh, politically correct speak for saying they were lying. And what those leaders were doing, not all of them were doing this, by the way, but just some of them, these leaders were, rather than accepting the outcome of what had happened, they were claiming to be victims. They were claiming that they had been wronged by the other side rather than accepting the outcome of the vote. They were claiming victim status, something that's becoming a growing problem in our culture. Now, there are lots of people out there who have been seriously wronged by people and organisations and by the government. And those people need our deepest support, love and care. But that's not what I'm talking about when I'm referring to victim status. 
These days, it can be almost trendy to think of yourself as a victim because rather than having to own your own mistakes or failures or circumstances, you can simply blame somebody else for it whilst claiming to be the innocent victim yourself. In fact, being a victim in our culture these days puts you in charge. Claim to be a victim and you'll soon find other people who will follow you. You'll soon find yourself leading a group of people who all feel like victims. People who want to defend you and your cause just because you claim that you have been hard done by. People who identify with someone they perceive has been wronged in some way because usually they think of themselves as an innocent victim as well. And so they're eager to do whatever they can to cut down what who they perceive are tall poppies and who they believe are oppressing people. This kind of thinking, this kind of victim mentality runs into direct opposition to what God's word has to say about us. Romans 3 tells us that we aren't victims, but rather we are the guilty ones. We're the ones who have mistreated and rejected other people. But not just other people, we're the ones who have mistreated and rejected the one who has given us everything. We are the ones who keep on rebelling against God, even though he sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. If we have faith in Jesus, we are not victims. We are all guilty, the guilty who have been declared innocent because of what Jesus has done for us. And so when we're mistreated by others, when our circumstances don't go our way, as those who trust in Jesus, we have the option to either claim victim status and complain about our lot in life or to claim the victory over our circumstances through Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Last time we are in the book of Acts, uh, we read how the Roman commander, commander uh, Claudius Lysias, had sent Paul on to Governor Felix. And he did this to protect him from a group of Jews who had taken a vow not to eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. But as Paul was brought before Felix, and then later before Festus, he now has to defend himself against a whole host of accusations. We're told in verse 1 that five days after Paul had been sent to Caesarea, the Jews waged an attack against Paul. This time the high priest Ananias, along with some Jewish leaders and a lawyer that they'd hired named Tertullus, all made their way to Caesarea in order to bring charges against Paul. 
Now, as one Bible commentator puts it, it was very easy to tell when Tertullus was telling a lie. That's because his lips were moving. So Tertullus, well, he began with these words. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought us have brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with proud gratitude. Now, to understand how deceitful these words were and how horrible it was for a Jew to say this, this kind of lies, these kind of lies, we need to understand who Felix was. Felix was a very unusual governor. He was born a slave, and he only gained his freedom because of some connections that his brother had with Emperor, Emperor Claudius. And over time, he used those same connections through his brother to become the very first slave to ever become a governor of a Roman province. And where he had come from and how he had gotten there greatly influenced the way that he governed. Tacitus, a, a Roman historian, describes Felix as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of the king with the spirit of a slave. And he goes on to say, that he had put down several insurrections with such barbarous brutality that he earned him for himself the horror, not the thanks, of the Jewish population. And this, because, this was because only reasonably recently, Felix had ordered the massacre of thousands of Jews in Caesarea. He was a man that was known for his brutality and his corruption. So this gives you an insight into how far Tertullus would go in order to bring charges against Paul, even cozying up against this murderer of the Jews. But his lies don't stop there. Tertullus makes his case against Paul using descriptions that he knew would be very concerning to the Romans. It was a Roman governor's highest priority to maintain peace and order within their province. And they would do this at any cost. And so Tertullus frames Paul's charges like this. That Paul was a troublemaker who had stirred up riots among the people all over the world and that he is the ringleader of the Nazarene sect. To the Romans, these were very serious accusations. But then Tertullus makes the mistake almost of, of narrowing it down to his main point. The one thing that has really offended the Jews, that he had desecrated the temple. Desecration of the temple was something that the Romans could not care less about. And so after Tertullus had finished bringing his accusations, the other Jews got up and asserted that Tertullus was telling the truth, that everything he had said he'd got right. These Jews were doing everything they could to convince the governor that Paul was dangerous. Can you imagine how Paul must have felt, sitting there all that time, listening to accusation after accusation being thrown out? None of those accusations were true. 
Paul was being tried before a corrupt Roman governor, while a corrupt lawyer laid out false accusations against him and his own people, some leaders of his own people were there nodding and smiling and cheering on this corrupt lawyer. In this situation, Paul truly was a victim. He hadn't done any of the things that they claimed he had done. And yet he had to be silent and sit there in the hope of being given an opportunity to defend himself. After his accusers had finished making their case, Felix Felix finally motioned for Paul to speak. And all Paul really says to defend himself is that these claims aren't true and that they can't prove it and that if they could, they would have provided some witnesses to that effect. Then he narrows it down as well and he gives the real reason why he is there. He says, it was this one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. It was was Paul's hope in the resurrection, not just the general resurrection, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ that had brought him into strong conflict with these Jews. Of course, all those who were Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection, just not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But at this point in history, Christian conflict between the Romans and the Christians would later arise. But at this point in history, the Romans couldn't care less about Jewish religious matters, which meant that without any evidence on a case that was purely about Jewish religious matters, Felix had more than enough information to rule in Paul's favour. But even though it was an open and shut case, Felix puts off giving his verdict, not because he needs more time to consider anything, but because he was waiting, hoping that Paul would give him a bribe in order to get his freedom. And so for two long years, two long years, Paul remained a prisoner without a verdict. Although he did use that time to good effect. He did spend that time sharing the good news of Jesus with Felix and his wife, Drusilla, and warning them about the coming judgment. That is, until it all just got too much for Felix and he sent Paul away. The trumped-up charges against Paul were shown to be false, but for two whole years he remained a prisoner without any verdict on his case. So when... Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Paul may well have thought that this might be his opportunity to regain his freedom. But before he was given an opportunity to even give his side of the story, the Jews cozied alongside Festus, hoping to work out a way that they might be able to kill him. Festus had had already heard all the charges that they were going to bring against Paul before he even made his way to Caesarea because he'd spent eight to ten days with these Jews as they butted him up and tried to convince him 
to do everything they were asking him to do. And so as Paul stood before the court in Caesarea for the second time round, the Jews brought all their charges all over again. Paul, well, he gave his defence for a second time. And even after this second hearing, there were no charges laid. There was no basis for any of these charges. They were completely false. Wanting to please the Jews for political reasons and personal gain, Festus asked Paul if he would be willing to be tried in Jerusalem. Now, Paul wasn't silly enough to fall for that. He saw straight through their plot. He now understood that he wasn't going to receive a fair trial in Caesarea. He certainly wouldn't receive one in Jerusalem, and that would only be if he made it there alive. And so he was forced to say the words, I appeal to Caesar. It was the right of every Roman citizen, Paul was a Roman citizen, to have their case heard before the Caesar himself. This is the ancient equivalent of taking a matter to the high court. And we'll hear more about how that plays out next week. But for now, Paul is still in prison. He still hasn't received a verdict on his case. He still has no idea whether he is going to be put to death or set free. And all this trouble and anguish is not because of anything he has done, but because of some trumped-up charges that the religious leaders had laid upon him. In these circumstances, Paul was a victim, a victim of those who were persecuting him and anyone who trusted in Jesus, a victim of their lies, a victim of their hatred. But despite how difficult this situation must have been for Paul, having now spent years in prison without a single charge being laid, Paul didn't give in to a victim mentality, but instead he held on to his victory in Christ Jesus, kept his eyes fixed on the hope that he has. We're all tempted to fall into the trap of feeling as though we've been hard done by at different times. Maybe we're tempted to think of ourselves as victims because maybe we feel like others are taking us for granted, even though we're working hard to serve them and others. And maybe we feel overwhelmed and burdened at times and feel as though nobody cares. Maybe we're tempted to think of ourselves as victims because of how someone else has treated us or ignored us, because we don't feel as though we've done anything to deserve that kind of behaviour. Maybe we're tempted to think of ourselves as victims because of financial or health struggles. Because the I have been hard done by kind of thought excuses us from being responsible for how we react to our circumstances, often circumstances we cannot change. It blames someone else or something else for grudges or for 
bad reactions or poor choices instead of pointing us to Christ. When we remind ourselves that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what others may or may not have done to us, no matter how hard or how immovable our struggles feel like they are, we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, even if our circumstances don't change. If there was anyone who was truly a victim, it was Jesus. He became the ultimate victim. Absolutely no sin of his own at all. When he took on our guilt and shame, he suffered unjustly in our place. He became sin for us and rose victoriously from the grave so that we could have life in him. We can have that life in him because we know that our Saviour will never leave us or forsake us. Because we know that all things are possible with our creator, God. Because we know that our hope is guaranteed no matter what we are going through in this life. These words, I think, are even more striking even more challenging when you know where Paul was when he wrote them. Romans 8. Well, Paul was in Caesarea, in jail, without a verdict, he wrote these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that, we pray knowing that everyone, in everyone's lives, there are struggles. There are things that we wrestle with, things that upset us at times and things that we find hard to deal with. We pray knowing that, Lord, but we also pray knowing what you have done for us. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence in the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Point our hearts back to that victory when we are tempted to feel sorry for ourselves. Help us to remind, help, remind us, Lord, of the hope we have. Point us back to the certainty of who you are and of what you have done for us. That you became the victim for us so that we could have the victory in you. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.